Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Alright, well hello everybody and welcome back to the China Shop. We are opening up the shop for this holiday weekend as we've got another exciting guest episode. The dedicated and dynamic Duncan Maven, author of The Pyramid of Lies, is joining me to discuss the Greensill Collapse. But before we dive into today's discussion, I'd just like to take a quick minute to thank our friends over at TradePro Academy and Orderflow Labs. If you're looking for institutional quality trading education, make sure you check out tradeproacademy.com. And if you're into trading futures, you'll definitely want to look into the custom tools and studies over at orderflowlabs.com. And lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you check out Duncan's book, The Pyramid of Lies, Lex Greensill, and The Billion Dollar Scandal. Links for all that stuff will be in the episode description. And make sure you reach out to us if you've got suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. You can do that via email at twobulls at financialineptitude.com, or you can just join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather every day to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. Uh, those links will also be in the episode description. Now that we got all that good stuff out of the way, let's get to know today's guest. Duncan, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I detect a bit of an accent there. Is that Scottish? Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm English. I'm from the north of England. Uh, I grew up in a place, a newer place called Newcastle, which is about as far north as you can go in England before you hit Scotland. I was, okay, I was going to say, I thought Scotland was northern England. But I know you guys get really, really... Uh, uh, there's there's a bit of a rivalry between the Scots and the Brits from from what I understand. You're gonna you're gonna offend some people uh, with that, but uh, I'll leave that to you. So I I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, just guess the accent. I should just ask politely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, mine's, mine's a bit of a mess. So I lived in Canada for a while and uh, in New York and Hong Kong, and so my accent's become a bit of a mess. If I'm honest, <laughs> uh, I, I I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would know the difference. So, Duncan, you have been writing about the green cell collapse, and that is something that I have been keenly interested in because I used to work for Liberty Steel, which is one of the companies that Gupta bought over here in the States. And Gupta, as you probably know, is one of the big beneficiaries from green cells, loose money lending practices. Yeah. Yeah. It's Sanjeev Gupta and Lex Greensill, their their fates are very much kind of intertwined. And am I mistaken in believing that they actually had a, a business relationship that extended outside of Greensill? Uh, they well, their their business relationship was very very close. So they had matching livery on their private aircraft. They <laughs> oh. uh, were kind of. Friends is, a, is an odd one because I'm not sure Lex or Sanjeev are particularly sort of friendly guys. You know, in, in that sense, they at one point Sanjeev Gupta had a stake in Green Cell, um, but it's so they're very, very, very closely related. Mm -hmm. So, 
why don't we just we should probably take a step back then and let's kind of just go through like the the uh timeline of what happened here because i'm sure you can fill in a lot of details that maybe i missed uh just being a lonely employee at that steel mill right so yeah so if we step right back lex greensill is this a uh, guy who grew up in a kind of fairly remote part of Australia on a farm. He uh, is, is a pretty bright guy, and uh, he, he you know ends up in the UK working for Morgan Stanley and then Citigroup. Along the way, he's kind of met some people who know a lot about this burgeoning kind of financial world of supply chain finance, which is kind of providing finance to um, suppliers and buyers of goods. Mm-hmm. And eventually he launches his own business. He kind of tires of the banks, launches his own business, uh, Greensill Capital in 2011. Around the same time, he gets uh, he gets inside the UK government. He sort of makes some contacts there and he starts to get some UK government um, access. And the business kind of, it stumbles along for a while, uh, not really making much money. He's, he's struggling to make it profitable. Um, but around about five or six years ago, uh, he starts to become a bigger deal. And uh, Greensill Capital grows quite fast after that. Partly, you're right, the Sanjeev Gupta relationship is key. Sanjeev Gupta is this guy who's trying to build a steel uh, and metals business around the world. And he can't get financing because some of the banks are a little skeptical about his business practices. And Lex comes along and is the guy who can finance him. Right. And so they, their businesses grow together uh, until they until they collapse uh, a year or so ago. Uh, but I was actually kind of shocked that, that Gupta managed to seem to get out of that kind of unscathed. Uh, well, is he unscathed? I'm not sure. Right now, he's desperately trying to renegotiate several billion dollars worth of debt, most of it owed to clients of Credit Suisse. Um, and just in the last week or so, uh, there have been kind of noises out of Gupta's business, which is called the GFG Alliance, that they have reached some kind of deal whereby the debt will be restructured. Um, but people, including journalists at the FT, have reported that Credit Suisse is going to take a pretty big haircut on that, maybe 50% or more. There's a lot of lot of stuff, details to be figured out on that, you know, because uh, it's not clear that Credit Suisse could really make that kind of deal. Um, and I'm not sure they've publicly said too much about it either. I'm surprised Credit Suisse is even open to any dealings there. Yeah. Because weren't they one of the bigger people to get burned in this whole thing? Yeah, well, their clients were. So they were, they were, they had a bunch of funds, about $10 billion worth of funds that invested exclusively in green cell brokered assets. Uh, so their clients were the big, big losers, really, in in the Greensill collapse. Now I remember, I remember the financing being a big issue when I worked there, and this was back in uh, towards the end of 2020, I think, is when I left, uh, because the, we were we were rotating like between like which supplier we could pay this month right. or this week or even this day, like trying to get payments out last second just to be able to get like scrap in to be able to continue making steel. Yeah, I think that's been a, a- a problem with the GFG business from the start, right? That there, there wasn't really great financing. And so you, you constantly have heard rumors that the business was going to grind to a halt, that it couldn't pay for the raw materials uh, to produce the steel required to, you know, that it had already agreed to sell or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, none of the traditional banks would really touch that business at all. So this is where Greensill Capital came along. 
in theory, it was providing supply chain finance, but in practice, it was actually just providing enormous loans. The, you know, and and the the business of Greensill Capital is really interesting because he sort of ends up with the way I think about it is there's a supply chain finance business which is you know loans backed by invoices between suppliers and buyers of goods. They're kind of ninety day loans. Mm-hmm. They're in theory you know lots. They're very diverse. It's a diverse group of loans and they're short term and quite liquid and so therefore it's a pretty stable, steady business. Um, and he does that for a big blue chip companies like Coca-Cola, General Electric, Boeing. And the problem with that business is it just isn't very profitable at all. So that's kind of 70% of the business, large, credible clients, but not very profitable. Mm-hmm. So then the other 30% of the business is, you know, large loans that aren't really anything to do with supply chain finance quite often. And they're two risky companies that aren't particularly credible, that are <laughs> desperate for, you know, somebody to provide some financing. And so you blend these two things together. And, you know, in the case of Greensill Capital, the other thing you do is you, you take a trade credit insurance, which kind of layers over the top to give it all the appearance of investable assets. And then you palm it off onto somebody else. So you give it to Credit Suisse's clients or... Okay. Yeah, okay. There's another asset manager as well called GAM that was invested in Greensill stuff. Oh, Jesus. Uh, you you mentioned you mentioned that um, that most of their business was like low margins, like not very profitable. But isn't yeah. that kind of uh, like indicative of like the whole credit industry as a whole? Like, don't don't they make most of their money from like the riskiest ten percent of their clients, or has that changed in the years? Uh, that may be true. I mean, it was particularly the case here, and you know, very reminiscent of the run up to the financial crisis in a way and that mm-hmm. it was this sort of really super safe but a little bit boring business mixed with this highly risky uh, but potentially more profitable business and then kind of given a veneer of respectability and sold on to people as though it was super safe and in fact it wasn't yeah it sounds like default swaps and yeah exactly it's, yeah it's like subprime mortgage yes that over again right yeah this sounds very very similar when it comes to to you mentioned the term uh, supply chain financing a couple of different times, can you can you kind of explain what that is? Yeah, in in theory, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's like there are transactions between buyers and suppliers of goods. So let's say you know a factory is buying raw materials from its supplier, and often you know the factory, the buyer wants to pay like 180 days from when the goods are delivered and the supplier wants to be wants to be paid straight away and that's kind of a conflict and so the supply chain finance provider steps in the middle and says okay I'll give you the the supplier of goods I'll I'll pay you right up front on day 1 and um buyer I'll I'll claim that money back from you at a later date and I'll take a cut of that transaction so in theory, it's a, you know it's something that's been around for ages. It's 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 a sort of win win for everybody. The trouble is, as we've said, it's not very high margin. The banks do it for all their clients, but do it often as a kind of a loss leader almost. Okay, because it did seem like I thought I remember reading um, about some of the different acquisitions that Gupta was making. It seemed like he was basically taking all of the outstanding invoices and using that as collateral to fuel a lot of his purchases. Yeah, so. This is where it starts to get kind of tricky with the Greensill capital model. Rather than using actual invoices, real invoices based on real transactions, in some cases in the Greensill capital supply chain finance model, they start to come up with kind of imagined invoices 
of transactions that may or may not happen sometime in the future. And they say, let's have a list of people who may do business with you. And then let's think of what they might buy from you. And then, and then let's finance that stuff too, which is, you know, a million miles away from actual invoices and actual transactions. I'm so happy to hear you say that because uh, I think that was the same thing I've been saying for the last year and a half when I'm puzzling over this. And it sounded so absurd that I didn't, I just wasn't sure that it could possibly be true. Oh, it is. It is true. And they, they actually don't really deny it. They, they're sort of open about it and, you know, almost say, well, you know, what, what's the difference? Well, the difference is it's not what you said you were doing. <laughs> the you know, the so. difference is one, one is committed. Like, when you yeah. have an outstanding invoice, that money is coming. Yeah. Well, in some cases, this was a, you know, a list of potential right. suppliers of goods or buyers of goods who ha- didn't even know they were on the list, yeah. right? They'd yeah. never actually done any business with Sanjeev Gupta or you know, some of the other people Greensill provided financing to. These were really sort of you know, imagined uh, transactions. And that was, I think, Credit Suisse was left to, to sort through that mess, weren't they? Didn't they have a list of people they were calling and they're they get someone on the line and they're like, I don't know who that is. We've never done business with them. That's right. That's right. So yeah, Credit Suisse, when it all goes wrong, kind of says, well, you know, what have we got here? And it turns out that what they've got is a load of made up stuff. So how does Credit Suisse get involved in something like this and not, not be aware of this, basically what they're investing in or letting their clients invest in? Great, great question. So they're, the, they're sort of the second big asset manager to get involved. The first one is another asset manager based out of Switzerland and London called GAM. GAM does a lot of business with Greensill before it goes wrong and uh, almost wipes out the company. Then Credit Suisse takes over. Having seen what happened to GAM, you'd think they would sort of steer clear, but they don't. You know, I think what happens there is there's a you know a couple of portfolio managers who are getting a lot of assets under management passed along by Lex Greensill. And they're thinking, that's great. My, you know, I'm building this huge pool of assets and I'm shipping them off to my clients and we're telling them that it's, um, you know, a little bit better return than money market stuff. But, you know, that, that's great because interest rates are super low. And at that, at that time, at least they were super low. And so it's sort of appealing to my clients. And this stuff is investment grade rated because we've got this trade credit insurance that, you know, wraps around it and makes it look super safe. And so I don't think they're doing too much due diligence on the underlying assets um you know if they had done they would have seen that actually strip away the trade credit insurance and what you're left with is a real mixed bag (laughs) right it's not the first time credit Suisse has been involved in some uh, i don't know what the right term here is that i could say without getting in trouble (laughs) yeah less problem problem yes okay that works (laughs) so yeah no i think that's right and i think you know there is a there's clearly been a a cultural problem at Credit Suisse for a while. And um, yeah, they sort of stumbled from one scandal to the next. And, uh, you know, now they're talking about, you know, they're, they're going to restructure their whole business, I think, in part as a response to this kind of stuff. You know, I think if you you look at that business, when certainly when I talk to Credit Suisse, you'd sort of talk to them about Greensill Capital and they'd say, well, look, you know, these assets are returning steady returns quarter after quarter. And instead of seeing that as a red flag, you know, instead right. of thinking, well, hang on, how can they be so stable? How can these returns be exactly the same month after month, quarter after quarter? That that must be a red flag. Instead of looking at it that way, they're kind of going, look, this is this is great business. 
And I guess if you're the portfolio manager and, you know, money is pouring into these funds and, you know, that means your your bonus is getting bigger every year, then maybe it does seem kind of fine. And even if you lose your job in the end, you've probably tucked away a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of cash in the meantime. Right. Well, it almost sounds too like there's this just this attitude of I don't care why it's performing well as long as it continues to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's probably something not you know good going on here, but I don't want to know about it because then I might be in. I can't get in trouble if I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a couple of things that go on. Uh, just to mention GAM again, like one of the things I think that happens there is that they make a couple of investments that are fairly small with green cell mm-hmm. and a couple of people internally kind of say hey i'm not really sure about this green cell stuff um but at that point it's you know five million dollars in a 10 billion dollar fund and and everybody kind of moves on you know they kind right. of look at it and go oh yeah yeah okay but we've got bigger things to do right now and then the number you know next month the number is maybe 10 or 20 million and the people put their hands up again and and everybody kind of moves on again by the time you get to like the number is now 200 million People are sort of thinking, well, I waved that along previously, so right. like now I'm kind of party to it. You know, should I really stand up? And so it takes a lot to get people to kind of think, I need to really put my foot down now. And I, I suspect that's the same at, at Credit Suisse, right? Like you, you sort of start fairly small, and eventually it sort of builds and builds. And maybe you thought there was something wrong, but you know, you should have spoken up when it was a, a ten million dollar problem. Now you got a ten billion dollar problem. And it's much harder to speak up at that point, having not spoken up earlier. It's also hard to speak up when the you know the money's rolling in too, when something's returning, yeah, exactly. you know, beating the market or whatever the actual returns were. Yeah. To come up and say like, well, "Hey, this is this is too risky." Like, yeah, you might be jeopardizing other people's bonuses. That, that's right. I think that's definitely a part of it. But I think there's another thing, which is that in the case of these green salt funds. Um, so long as the money keeps rolling in, you sort of don't have to acknowledge the problems. Right. It's only when the money has to go back out because uh, of some technical issues, which I can talk about, that suddenly the loans, you have to, you know, now i got to cash in my assets. i got to pay people back, so I need to liquidate the assets. And it turns out that actually can't liquidate these assets because these loans were not very good. <laughs> also, the, the assets they're backing them are fictional. They don't exist, right? So. <laughs> It's, you know, um, that's the problem, right? So, so long as it's growing, you know, the, one, the, the Credit Suisse guys would say, look, you know, we've never had a problem. These loans aren't defaulting. And the response to that had to be, well, they're not defaulting because you aren't putting them in default. Like they're not being paid back. But so long as the money keeps coming into these funds, you sort of never acknowledge that they may be defaulting. They may have gone bad. It's not until the money comes out of the funds and you need to liquidate the loans and they, they can't be liquidated because there's nothing there to back them up. Then you've got a problem. So how did it finally unravel? Yeah, so the, the final trigger was this, this insurance. So it, it turned out that the Credit Suisse funds were incredibly reliable, uh, relying on one small Australian insurer called the Bond and Credit Company. I had gone to Credit Suisse, by the way, to ask them why they were so reliant on this insurer like a, a few times. And um, anyway, the, the ownership of the bond and credit company changed hands from another Australian insurance company called Insurance Australia Limited. They sold their stake in it to Tokyo Marine, giant Japanese insurer, 
who started to do their own due diligence on the business, having just bought it, and they found this enormous exposure to Greensill Capital and said, we're not going to do that business anymore. And once that insurance went away, there, was, there were no other insurance providers willing to, fill, to step in. And so all of a sudden, these, uh, these credit suisse funds were no longer investable for a whole bunch of clients because they didn't have this insurance wrapper. And so they had to start trying to give the money back to clients. And it turned out they couldn't because there wasn't any money there. Oh my gosh. That, yeah. Why, it's, why it's, do people, uh, so this is the due diligence was done after the purchase was complete? Uh, well, some of it was before, but I think they didn't fully understand how big a deal it was until, till afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, this is a really small business. Bond and credit company was a very small business started only a few years ago and far and away its biggest client was green capital. And it, I, I went to credit Suisse at one point when, they 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 had in some marketing material some wording that said we work with a diverse range of insurers and i saw that actually 40% of the insurance was coming from the bond and credit company and not no other insurer was more than a few percent right so i went to them and said look this doesn't look like a diverse range of insurers it looks like you've got one insurer that's dominant and it's a really small company and by the way when i call anyone in the insurance industry they've never heard of them and they said to me, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're going to fix that. We're going to bring in a rule that says no single insurer can provide more than 20% of the coverage for these funds. Mm-hmm. Sounded great. But a few months later, I went back because the next set of marketing materials showed that actually uh, BCC was now providing more than 50% of the insurance <laughs> coverage. It had gone up, not down. Oh, Jesus. And, you know, and they sort of said, well, we're just not going to bother with that rule. We just changed our minds. And so then, you know, I kept an eye on it. And eventually BCC was sort of 70, 80 percent of the coverage of the funds. And by the way, you know, the funds in that period have grown from about $2 billion to $10 billion, which is an extraordinary amount of insurance to come out of one small company that, you know, few in the industry have ever heard of. Was that also another company that had ties to Gupta? Like whether the person was like an ex-associate or family member or something? They're not that I'm aware of. There are no specific links, but okay. um, certainly they were providing a lot of coverage for the loans that Lex was making to Sanjeev Gupta. So there was a sort of proximity there for sure. Right, right. So were you were you covering this before the collapse then? It sounds like you were digging into this and asking questions before it all blew up. Yeah, I started to get into it um, when the GAM scandal happened. So that's kind of 2018, 2019. Ah. And I had come across uh, uh, the GAM issue. And I I kind of wasn't writing much at the time. I was working for the Wall Street Journal, but I wasn't particularly doing a lot of writing. Um, I was kind of paying attention to the GAM scandal, but not too closely. Um, And then a source came to me and said, you really should look at this. It's pretty crazy. Nobody was mentioning green cell. They were kind of talking about a problem with a portfolio manager. And this sourcing and allowed me to see that actually the real problem was with the investments this portfolio manager had made in green cell assets. Mm-hmm. And so that, like, I'd never heard of green cell at this point, but I suddenly started to dig in and everywhere, you know, everywhere you dig, there's a red flag. And so that's, that's when I started to write about them in various sort of publications within Dow Jones, including the Wall Street Journal. What were some of those red flags that you found before they were getting reported? 
Well, I guess you were the one reporting yeah, well, them. First of all, I could find a lot of people who were really skeptical, especially in the insurance industry, mm-hmm. who'd had bad experiences with Greensill. Secondly, because these funds, both at, at um, GAM and, and then later at Credit Suisse, a lot of the information about the assets was public, right? So you could sort of look through who they'd made loans to, look through the, the documentation in the funds and see who the loans were going to. And then you just pull their accounts from Companies House or you know, Companies House to register in the UK or, or wherever else you could find them. And you could see that, you know, there were tens of millions of dollars being loaned to companies that just clearly didn't have the capacity to pay tens of millions of dollars back. <laughs> Or, you know, didn't really have a business that was running tens of millions of dollars through it. It was sort of nonsense stuff, you know, and some of the loans were like there was a loan to one of Lex Greensill's neighbors. And there was uh, <laughs> eventually there was a loan to like the cousin of one of the senior executives at Greensill. Um, there was a loan to a company, $12 million or thereabouts, that was loaned to a company that was essentially a bunch of ex-military guys who were kind of running a private military contracting business. You know, this is sort of not not wow. what I thought supply chain finance was. No. This wasn't, you know, Coca-Cola paying its suppliers on a regular basis. No, this is this sounds like somebody just hooking his friends up. There was definitely a large part of it. So the, the stuff that stood out was a massive amount of lending to Sanju Gupta, who had this mixed reputation, to say the least. A lot of loans to you know friends and family, some loans that seem to go to companies that far from sort of having regular supplier payments, actually were sort of development projects or buildings under development. You know they just didn't. It was project finance, not supply chain finance. Um, later, there were a lot of loans to a company called Bluestone Resources, which is um, a coal company owned by the governor of West Virginia. Huh. Um, and that was also quite bizarre. They seem to be paying their uh, their fees, their loan fees, in stock of the of the coal company, which was a really odd way to pay back a loan. That is, I wonder why why a coal company. Uh, so, well, what was interesting there was, you know, Sanjeev Gupta's steel business really needed coal. Um, so there was a sort of at one point. A, a genuine effort by Lex Greensill to kind of connect the the Gupta steel business and the Bluestone coal business run owned by, as I say, the governor of West Virginia, a guy named Jim Jim Justice, mm-hmm. who's a fairly well known politician, and um, yeah, to sort of connect the dots between those two businesses. All right, that makes um, sense. Yeah, I do remember. In the end, there was about eight hundred million dollars to Bluestone. Good lord, that. This is even bigger than I thought it was, and I thought it was pretty big. Yeah, I mean, these are staggering amounts of money, right? You know, um, and and none of it, of course, is Lex Greensill's money. It's all actually clients of Credit Suisse, right. or actually, you know, at another another point, Lex Greensill was able to buy a bank in Germany, and so sometimes it was bank deposit money. <laughs> so the the. The German bank's fascinating in and of itself. He bought a bank that was kind of a 90-year-old bank. It had never really been very big. It was a few branches. He bought it for a few million dollars. When he got some investment money, he used that to capitalize the bank uh, and then was able to attract deposits by offering reasonably strong deposit interest rates. 
at a time when in Germany, actually, interest rates in many cases were negative. Mm -hmm. So he gets a lot of money deposited from German municipalities. So sort of cities around Germany put their money into this bank. And he then takes that and lends it to Sanjeev Gupta. Wow. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Wasn't there too another uh, thing with the the auditing firms that was actually keeping like the books for Greensill that was like just a random address in like London? Oh well, there's a couple of things there. So auditor wise, Greensill had a very small auditor, relatively very small auditor for the size of the company, and couldn't really get a bigger auditor. Tried, kind of tried, and never was able to get one. But I think what you're talking about is. Um, Sanjeev Gupta, his personal accounts, his his own accounts were, uh, and the, the accounts of some of the Gupta companies were audited by a company named King and King. Ah, uh, that's which yes, is, yes. Uh, you know, a handful of people in a you know tiny office in a suburb of London. It's <laughs> it's not a huge international firm. It's about the opposite end of the scale. I I can't tell whether I should be outraged or just impressed that somebody was able to to basically just create enough capital out of nothing to be able to fund a basically a steel empire he's one of the largest steel producers now in the in the world at this point uh there's certainly it's certainly a big sprawling global empire yeah i mean it's australia it's europe the uk uh some business in the u.s Mm -hmm. um it's it's kind of amazing as you say and I think, you know, it's sort of, is it too big to fail? Maybe. I mean, there are a lot of jobs at those companies and they're often in, in areas where politicians are, are not inclined to let the jobs go away, right? And right. So, and that's always the promise that he comes in. Like there's a location yeah. in somewhere in the middle of the US that he was he was purchasing because he wanted, the, I think he wanted the, the shredder for, for shredding scrap to be able to reduce the cost of that. Uh, but part of that purchase agreement was to be able to put so much money in to redo the melt shop and basically keep the jobs open for the people in that community. And I don't know that that ever actually came to fruition or not. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is this weird stuff that happens with 
both Lex and Sanjeev Gupta, where they're sort of promising to be like really the good guys. Mm-hmm. You know, Lex often talked about democratizing finance. Who's going to democratize finance? And they, they, you know, Sanjeev would always talk about saving jobs. Yes. Um, they talk about green steel, right? Yep. I, I don't know if you ever heard Oh, yeah. No, they were make, trying to make the push when I was there. Yeah. So there's this veneer of like, we, they're really the good guys at the forefront of kind of, you know, the, the, sort of friendly face of capitalism whereas in reality behind the scenes it's something completely different i think you know one of the green steel one of the green businesses that was really interesting and involved in all of this was at one point lex used a whole bunch of money from gam to fund some biofuel generators that were uh owned by gupta mm-hmm. um and it was hundreds of millions of dollars and these biofuel generators were, you know, they were they were going to be like green energy, right. great, you know, great businesses. It turned out that they they never actually worked. Um, <laughs> and my my sources told me that when they were trying to sell them, they would like hook them up to a diesel generator, bring you know, bring people around oh, and Jesus. fire these things up with a diesel generator in the background, and and you know, try and persuade them that they needed one of these biofuel things, which. So it's like uh, Nicola with their semi truck that the the right, test footage right, right, of right. just it rolling down a hill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they're kind of you know they're fairly smart in that they they latch onto these sort of positive messages and and try and sell it that way, which I think is appealing often to politicians for sure. Yeah did did he ever actually end up managing to purchase those distressed assets in Britain? The last I was following, he was this was maybe a year ago. He was trying to buy. Um, trying to save the a bunch of jobs in the UK. But I think that was yeah. about the time when this whole collapse was happening. Yeah, so that's still rumbling along. Um, he's the, the, the Gupta Steel businesses in the UK are still still there. He's still, um, wow. Yeah, he didn't, he was at one point looking for a government bailout to help him with that stuff, but that, that didn't happen. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Although, like you said, at this point, he may be too big to fail. Yeah. I mean the other the other thing that happened with Gupta and Lex, you know, that was also part of their downfall. I think in the UK was during COVID when the government in the UK rolled out, you know, a COVID loan scheme for businesses. They one of the rules was that no uh, business organisation could have a single loan of more than fifty million uh, pounds, and instead. Lex Greensell and Sanjeev Gupta took out seven loans of fifty million pounds. Oh God! Uh, for various GFG businesses, right? So uh, you know, clearly not in the spirit of those rules. Uh, it's uh, what's the, the ter- creative financing is what that sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah. So what is the like? What's what's the fallout from this? Like, is anybody actually getting in trouble for any of the the loosey goosey? Right. That's another great question. So at the minute, there are criminal investigations into parts of the Green Cell organization in Switzerland and in Germany. There's a criminal investigation by the Serious Fraud Office in the UK into aspects of Sanjeev Gupta's business. And that investigation, they kind of named Green Cell as part of it, too. Um, so those... I love that name, by the way. So Sorry? I love the name of that, the Serious Fraud Office. Yeah. And then, you know, there, then there are multi-billion dollar lawsuits around the world. There's a huge lawsuit right now in Australia involving the insurers mo- mostly um, try and, and their 
one of the insurers, Tokyo Marine, has been pretty forthright in their condemnation of, of the green salt business. So they're obviously trying to avoid having to pay out on these policies that were written by this company, BCC, that they bought, um, while, you know, others on the other side of that are trying to force them to pay. But their, their allegation is that we shouldn't have to pay on these policies because they, they shouldn't have been written in the first place, given that the underlying business wasn't what it was supposed to be. Mm, right. But it's complicated, you know, and I, I'm, my guess is that this stuff's going to go on for years. And in the meantime, uh, you know, Sanjeev Gupta, Lex Greensill are trying to defend themselves. They are both incredibly wealthy people, um, very, very well connected. And so we'll have to see how it all plays out, I guess. Well, you talked about the the, the imaginative financing or imaginative invoices financing. Can we call it that? That sounds... Yeah. Sounds nice and catchy. Like that is that how is that not fraud? <laughs> like is there any way you can defend that legally? Yeah, I mean, I am not a lawyer and I know lawyers have a very strict definition of of what is fraud. Um, you know, it's definitely I think it's pretty clear that some of what they were up to in any common sense view was wrong and misleading. Mhm. Um, but I think, and, and certainly, you know, um, there were allegations made in the UK Parliament of fraudulent behaviour. But uh, whether or not, you know, I'm told by lawyers, it's very difficult yes. to prove okay. uh, prove that something is a fraud, and uh, you know that the definition legally is is something uh, very specific. But yeah, I mean, I think the Clearly, there was wrongdoing. There was this massive business that collapsed, and there's a whole bunch of loans written in a way that wasn't what most people thought they were. But you know where it all ends up, I don't know. And my guess is the people who are going to really, really get rich on this are the lawyers who are going to try and unravel it all. Oh, no kidding! I, I just keep going back to that creative, uh, yeah, creative financing that they did. And well, I guess on the one hand, like if you're sitting down with a representative from your bank or the person who's lending you money, and he's saying, "Hey," give me a list of people you'd like to do business with and how much you'd like to sell to them. And then we'll write you a loan to that. Like you can't really hold the guy who's taking the money like too accountable for yeah. that. Right. Can you? Right, right, right. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to, again, this is where, you know, you and I are talking about things applying common sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> not always what happens in law and finance. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, it's, it's really tricky. I mean, I, you know, Common sense tells you that that isn't supply chain finance. It's not what people who are investing in this stuff assume is what's happening. They think that they're paying, they're, they're putting money into funds that are backed by real transactions, not into funds that are backed by made up transactions that might never happen. Right. You know, that's a different kind of risk tolerance, right? And, yeah. You know, there's probably, it's probably, there's somebody out there who is interested in investing in exactly that kind of thing and they want a certain return for it. And that's a different person, I think, than the person who wants a little bit more yield than a money market. Yeah, no kidding. That that person has a much larger risk appetite. Yeah, investing in junk debt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's not. It's a legitimate business. It's just a different business. Right. It can be very lucrative, but it can also be <laughs> can also take you out pretty quick. So, is this the? Have you seen anything else like this or similar to this? Like, are there any other cases that you've come across that uh, remind you of what's going on now? Well, I think um, there are different aspects that are reminiscent of other 
different things. So I think, you know, as I said, I think the specific nature of the investments and what went wrong is is very similar to, you know, what happened with subprime mortgages in, in the run-up to the financial crisis, mm-hmm. where something that is actually quite risky is pooled together with something that is less risky and kind of wrapped up in a way that makes it look like it's investment grade when in reality it's not. So I think that that that's a really clear, uh, you know, clear parallel. Then I think there are other things. So I think, you know, if you, if you think about some of the founders and businesses that have gone wrong lately, whether it's Adam Newman at WeWork or Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, uh, you know, or, or others, the, the idea that a visionary founder is somebody to invest in seems really striking. And I think Lex Greensill is like that too. You know, we, we haven't talked about it yet, but the, what really turbocharges the Greensill capital business is a couple of big investments, mm-hmm. uh, you know, $250 million from General Atlantic, a giant private equity fund, and then $1.5 billion from the SoftBank Vision Fund that, you know, turned Greensill Capital from a sort of failing small business to a big player. That those investments are, you know, to some degree similar to the sort of investments that go into Theranos and into WeWork and into lots of other businesses like that. Right. In the last 10 years. And I think they are that the the investors are willing to put their money in because they see Lex Greensill as this kind of visionary. Um, and he's, you know, he he plays up to that role. So there's a, another parallel there, I think. That's a that's an excellent point, bringing up the like the Theranos and uh, even maybe throw Sam Bankman Fried into that category, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, that over the past 10 years, I guess that's one of that's been one of the big trends, right, is is that money from big pool, big investors like the SoftBank Vision Fund, but others, too, who've seen who, who said, look, you know, I think crypto is the future or bio, you know, healthcare is the future or supplier payments is the future. And then they look around for who's the guy or the woman who is like the most exciting person in that business. And then they pour their money in and they hope that that's going to pay off. And clearly it sometimes doesn't. That's, uh, is that just like trying to get uh, like a brand recognition almost like you're trying to find the next Steve Jobs or the next Elon Musk or person who's going to be, you know, that everyone's excited to, to follow and yeah. I think that's it, right? It's like it's the next Mark Zuckerberg, the next Elon Musk, the next Steve Jobs. They're looking for these. There's a there's a belief that the, these visionaries are worth investing in for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't really. You, who cares about the due diligence? Look at this person's, you know, uh, charisma. We're buying this person. We're buying this brand. Yeah, yeah, and that that definitely happens here. Look, I mean, SoftBank puts. Uh, well, initially, it put, they put about $800 million in after about eight weeks of due diligence. So they made a decision to put $800 million into this business after only about eight weeks from start to finish. They first met Lex, and then eight weeks later, they put money, put $800 million in. They put an extra $600 million in a couple of months later. Um, you know, that's a, that's a staggeringly quick decision for that amount of money. And that was after doing due diligence? Well, it was eight weeks of due diligence. Yeah, I mean, they, they are following General Atlantic, who are you know widely considered to be pretty good, pretty smart. So I think they've kind of taken some comfort from the fact that General Atlantic have already invested, right? So you know, their eight weeks starts with that context. But uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly fast. And when was what time was this happening at? So this is sort of twenty nineteen ish. 
where the, where the money starts to pour in. Okay. And General Atlantic have been tracking him for years before that. You know, they've, they've been watching him for a while. Uh, they were really keen to get into payments businesses. They, their, their view was that digital payments businesses were mm. a, a big trend to follow. And so Lex was kind of the, you know, one of the visionaries in that world. At least that's what they thought. Right. And so they put a $250 million in. I just think I like you started like this came to your attention in 2018, you said. And well, exactly, exactly. So, and you found nothing but red flag after red flag, and you don't even have access to some of the materials that somebody doing due diligence for an investment would have access to. You're right. And I, that so, I struggle to explain. That's not the first time I've seen, you know, stories like this. Like we've talked to, to Jared Bibler about uh, the Iceland secret, the book that he wrote about the collapse of the right. Icelandic banking system. And it was like the same thing. Uh, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland collapse, you know, the, the purchases that they were making, they called it due diligence light. Like, I guess I just don't, maybe I don't understand what due diligence is, but to me, that's when you're looking for those red flags and trying to determine whether or not it is a safe or risky asset. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, sometimes it sort of looks like people have already made up their mind what outcome they're looking for. And so the due diligence takes the form of you know, trying to come up with a pre, you know, trying to fit to a predetermined decision. Uh, That's my guess looking at some of these things. But um, yeah, it's it's hard, right? Like I, I how many you know, we're talking about the ones that go wrong, but I guess there's due diligence done on all sorts of investments that don't go wrong mm, right? all the time. So yeah, how many of those? Well, I mean, how many of those two are they able to fix the problems before they become public? Yeah. And in this case, right, you know, one of the things I think that happens with Lex Greensill is like every time he gets in a scrape and then he gets out of it, it sort of enhances right. his reputation. So where I'm, I might look at that and go, wow, this guy's got a problem and you know it's only a matter of time before one of these goes wrong actually other people who look at it and are close to him say oh, this guy really is a genius you know he got a got us out of another scrape right um and so that kind of makes the visionary thing stand out even more oh that's a great point too i guess uh i guess it tells you the the, the mentality of the people right that, that's that's a lot less yeah. risk averse than than you or i probably yeah, and I think sometimes maybe once you're sort of a believer, it's hard to change yeah. your mind, right? Like once you've sort of, you bought into an idea, it's it's kind of difficult to turn around later and say I was wrong for right. the last year. Well, it sounds like yeah, sounds like you had your work cut out for you writing this book, and um, also sounds like the ending isn't quite written yet too. What's the plans for that? Yeah, well, I'm keeping a close eye on everything that's happening, but uh, yeah, I, it's it, it definitely was it was a you know, challenging book to write, um, not least because the the quality of the information coming out of Greensill Capital was mixed right. at best. And also because, you know, there are a lot of parties who don't really want to speak about this, even people who lost out, right? So, you know, for for like the likes of Credit Suisse who, you know, lost a lot of their clients' money, it's not in their interest really, no. I think, to talk openly about what happened. It's probably similar at GAM. Um, you know, regulators that missed the red flags, not sure they're particularly keen to open the book again and, and, and figure out where they went wrong. So, yeah, it's a tricky, tricky thing to, to, to write. Um, Which is sad, though. It's sad because that is necessary. Like, how are you going to prevent these things from happening in the future if you're not going to take the time to look back and see where the failures were and prove yourself? 
Yeah, well, I totally agree. I think it's a real f- flaw in the financial system, right? That actually most people, when things go wrong, are incentivized to kind of you know yep. close ranks and uh, and try and hunker down. I mean, you know, t- to some degree, acknowledging that you own a bunch of dud assets uh, crystallizes that they are dud assets, right? right. Whereas if you kind of pretend that maybe they're not, then maybe you can find somebody else who'll buy them from you. <laughs> right. It's like uh, owning a scratch-off ticket. <laughs> like the odds of it hitting yeah, are very you know, slim, but until it's been scratched, it's still yeah. potential. And by the way, that's what happens here, right? So GAM, when 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 the GAM funds uh, implode, mm-hmm. uh, there's a whole bunch of green cell assets that essentially then just get shifted into the uh, credit the Credit Suisse funds. Yeah, where it all ends up. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not super hopeful, uh, super optimistic. I think there's a lot of money uh, involved, and that means that it's going to take a long time to unravel it. If you were the person in charge of overseeing like the resolution of this whole whole situation, like what would what would you want to see? You know, I, I would want to see first of all a lot of transparency. There isn't much of that at the moment. I'd want to know, you know, who met with the regulators. When did they meet with the regulators? There's a there's a Credit Suisse did a report into uh, what happened, and then they were going to publish a report at one point, and then they decided not to. So I'd like to see that. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really useful. You know, I think there's there's just a, a need for some openness about what happened. The the sad thing here, I think, is that what often gets forgotten forgotten in these kind of white collar scandals is there 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 are victims here, right? You know, there's. Yes. There's a thousand people who worked at Greensill Capital who thought they were working for some cool new business and they all got put out of work. And actually, many of them had to fight for a year to get their uh, appropriate redundancy pay. Mm-hmm. There are investors in the Credit Suisse funds, including, you know, there's some pension funds who lost money whose, you know, pensioners are out of pocket, but there are also individuals and, you know, they're fairly, fairly well off people, you know, it's people who had a few million dollars to invest. But that shouldn't make them less, you know, count less than other people. Right. So people lost millions and that's a problem. Um, And then there are others who were sort of whistleblower types or others who stood up and said, you know, there's something wrong here. And very often just got kind of steamrolled by the the green cell juggernaut. Um, And so, yeah, there are real victims. and, And I feel like, you know, they need some redress too. Yep. Yep. Well said. I also like that you didn't uh, jump to, to punishments for people that haven't been proven guilty yet either. <laughs> right, think, right, right. I think that's a, a hard thing to do sometimes, when, especially when you're really close to something, is to yeah start calling for blood before maybe it's ready. Maybe it's time yet. Right. Yeah, I think um, you know there needs to be a proper investigation, really, and, and a transparent accounting of what happened. Do you think that'll actually happen? Uh, I am... <laughs> I wish I was more optimistic, but sadly, I'm I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, I think there's so many vested interests. When something like this big blows up, yeah, there's so many vested interests. It's really hard to unravel them all. And I guess at the heart of it is there's a bunch of people who just want their money back. And if they get their money back, they don't really often don't really care, or if they don't lose as much money as they they thought they might, maybe they don't care about getting to the bottom of what happened. No, because that is just a reminder of something stupid that they did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Duncan, I hope you, uh, I hope you keep us informed of of this uh, this the story as it as it finally gets resolved. Hopefully, sometime in the near future. 
And if you ever do decide to write uh, another book on uh, focusing on Gupta side of things, I would I would be really interested in uh, <laughs> getting my hands on a copy of that. I'm sure there's a book there somewhere. Oh God, yeah, I know there is. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of people that worked for uh, uh, the the group, the I guess the GFG Alliance that I think would be willing to speak out. Yeah. Well, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Oh, uh, one more time. Can we uh, did we talk about the the book and where people can find it? Uh, yeah, it's um, the Pyramid of Lies, Lex Greensell, and the Billion Dollar Scandal, and it should be in all booksellers, online, Amazon, wherever you get your books. We'll have a link for the Amazon link in the episode description, so people can check that out. Definitely recommend uh, getting your hands on that uh, fascinating story. And thank you so much, Duncan, for for taking the time to come in here and fill in some of the gaps that I had from my experiences working for for Gupta's company. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Uh, yeah, unfortunately we have to close the shop and let everybody get back to their real jobs. Like to say thank you one more time for taking the time to join us. Uh, make sure you check out, uh, Duncan on Twitter as well. We'll have that link in the episode description, but unfortunately I do have to end this recording and say goodbye. We'll be back at you guys soon with another exciting episode, but until then take care out there and do your due diligence, real due diligence. Duncan, do you have anything you want to to add to the end there? That sounds great. Thanks. All right. Take care, guys. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.